Please turn in your Bibles with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Continuing through our summer series on the book of Ecclesiastes, we come to chapter 7, the first 14 verses. This is God's holy, inerrant word. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity." Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. As a psychology major in college, I learned how to apply labels to people who had sets of abnormal behaviors. Labels like bipolar, or obsessive-compulsive, or narcissistic, or autistic. I was reminded of those labels this week when I came across a very simplistic definition of schizophrenia. This is the definition I found. It said that it is abnormal social behavior that is due to a failure to recognize what is real. Abnormal social behavior that is caused by a failure to recognize what is real. Some of the symptoms of schizophrenia in that brief definition that that are given along with it were these, false beliefs, confused thinking, and socially unacceptable behavior. Now, we can all agree in applying a label like that to somebody who believes that they're Napoleon, or to somebody who believes that they're Santa Claus, or to somebody who believes that they're an emissary from some alien planet. But as I thought about that definition, as simplistic as it is, I suddenly realized that many people in our society would consider me, as a Bible-believing Christian, 
to be schizophrenic under that definition. Because isn't that how we are looked at by so many people, as people who have unacceptable behavior due to a failure to recognize what is real? Many people in our culture would say that we are characterized by false beliefs and confused thinking and socially unacceptable behavior. The real question comes down to this, what is real? How do you know what is real? Probably one of the most important questions you have to answer in life. Do we determine what's real by what our brains and our five senses tell us? Do we determine what's real because of what scientists tell us? Do we believe what's real based on what politicians tell us? Celebrities? Who gets to tell us what is real? The majority opinion polls? Ecclesiastes is given to us to talk about what's real. As we've been working our way through this difficult book, difficult but very, very rewarding, I have found, as we've been working our way through it, again and again and again, we find out that what the speaker, the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to get across to us is what is real and to point us to a greater reality. We believe that this book was written by a great king in Israel, very, very possibly Solomon himself. But as we've talked about, and just let me remind you of the way we've been understanding this book and its original intent, is that Solomon or whatever great king wrote the book, he wrote in a character. He kind of created a, a, a person he calls Kuheleth in, in uh, Hebrew, and the term is translated into our English translations as the preacher or the teacher. But he intends, and I've been calling him Q because I can't pronounce his name, but Q, as we've been talking about him through the summer, is really a philosopher. And Q has been trying to lay out before us a, a vision of what is reality, but he, by definition, by his own self-limitation, limits himself to what's true under the sun. In other words, what he can observe in this fallen world. Now, as he observes this fallen world, he does acknowledge, as we've seen before, that there is a creator, there is a God, but because he's limited to knowing only what he can observe under the sun, the God that he refers to matches up with the God of Scripture, but this God is silent. He's not spoken. And so he's talking about what's real based on observation. And his goal is to show us that if you only believe what you can observe under the sun, then life is meaningless and life is without purpose. That's a very depressing message. and We keep coming up against it week after week after week, but his purpose in laying out that stark reality for us is so that we will look beyond the sun for truth. So that we will look to God for a word from heaven. To find ultimate purpose. To find ultimate meaning. To find out the whole picture of the whole reality. That's the purpose of Ecclesiastes. To leave us thirsting for a word from God. This section that we're looking at this morning is a list of Proverbs. One of the reasons that 
People think maybe Solomon wrote this section because he was very fond of Proverbs. And in this section of Proverbs, anytime you study, you know, if you ever remember last year, we went through a study of Proverbs. It's very difficult to just read through Proverbs because the, 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 the Proverbs themselves don't relate to one another necessarily. And so often you have to kind of pull different Proverbs from different parts of the book of Proverbs together to get a common theme. But in this collection of Proverbs here, there is a theme. It jumped out at me as I dug into it this week. And the theme that I think that ties together these Proverbs is the theme of facing reality under the sun. That under the sun, this is reality, and we need to face it. Facing reality isn't easy, and facing reality isn't pleasant much of the time. Facing reality means making ourselves look at and consider and act upon Truths that are unpleasant. Truths that we would rather block out or avoid dealing with or be distracted from. The first truth, the first reality that Q wants us to face in this passage is the reality of death. Let me ask you, which invitation would you rather Affirm. Which, which invitation would you rather say yes to? An invitation to a birthday party or to a funeral? That's kind of a no-brainer. Who would choose to go to a funeral over a birthday party? Well, listen to what Q says in verse 1. The day of death is better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Obviously, it's a lot more fun to celebrate successes in life, to celebrate birthdays, to celebrate anniversaries or weddings or graduations. But what Q is saying is you want to edify your soul, go to a funeral. That's where you really grow in your understanding of what is reality. And the more you understand reality, the better you'll be off for it. We don't like to think about death in this society. Matter of fact, we've gotten very good at avoiding thinking about death. We've been able to delay death through medical science to a degree that no other generation has ever been able to do it. But it's not just delaying death. We insulate ourselves from it. We try to block it out of life as much as possible. I mean, think about it. If you lived 100 years ago or 200 years ago or 300 years ago, If you wanted a chicken sandwich, you had to go out and kill a chicken before you could eat your sandwich. Death, causing death, and death was a very real part of life. You lived in among your extended family. And so when your grandfather or great-grandfather got old and decrepit and was failing in health and was approaching his dying days, you didn't stick him off in a nursing home somewhere 50 miles away you watched him go through the dying process. Life was much more dangerous back then. And there were a lot more accidental deaths. When I think of my own family history, my grandfathers and my great-grandfathers all had two wives. Not because they were unfaithful to their first wife, because their first wives died. And that was just a reality that you kind of expected in life. They had a lot of kids back then. Some of my grandfathers and great-grandfathers had 15, 18 children. 
It's easier when you have two wives. But part of the reason for that was that you expected to lose two, three, four kids over the course of your life. Death was a reality that you couldn't avoid. You couldn't insulate yourself from. In verses 2 and 4, it talks about the house of mourning. The house of mourning is a good place to go to. Notice he doesn't say funeral home. They didn't have funeral homes back then. If your grandmother or grandfather died, you didn't wait for them to come and take the body away. You took care of the body. You prepared the body for death, and you became a host and hostess for all the grieving family and friends who wanted to pay their last respects, and you took care of burying the body. The house of mourning is a good place to go. Back in biblical times, when somebody in your family died, the grieving period was seven days. Unless you were more important, somebody like Moses had a 30-day grieving period. You see what I'm saying? Death was a part of daily reality. And that's a good thing Q is saying. Scripture continually, from beginning to end, calls upon us to reflect upon the brevity of our lives and the pervasive reality of death around us. That that is what life under the sun is like. And understanding that is essential. It's foundational to your worldview. It's meant to be how you face life every day, is realizing the reality of death. People used to keep time with hourglasses. Not nearly as convenient as a watch or an iPhone, but much more graphic in portraying for us the reality that time is slipping away and that time is getting shorter, something that you could see portrayed in front of your eyes. This is what the psalmist is writing about in Psalm 90, beginning in verse 9. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. That's what Q is trying to teach us, to number our days, to realize that death is a reality, and we need to face that. In Isaiah chapter 40, you've heard these verses many times, verses 6 and 7. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. But listen to where Isaiah points us in light of that truth that Q is trying to drive home. We are like grass. We're here today, gone tomorrow. But listen to what Isaiah says to point us to the greater reality. He says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And that's where we'll get to. But it begins with an awareness of the brevity of human life under the sun. It's a plain truth that we learn more from the difficult times in our lives, from the times of suffering. We learn more than we do from the times of prosperity and ease and comfort. But it's also true that facing death is much more edifying to us than celebrating the successes in this fallen world under the sun. If you don't believe me, ask someone who's been through a near-death experience and ask what impact that has had on their lives. But Q isn't only talking about mourning over the reality of death. He goes on to talk about facing 
your faults and your sin, that that is part of facing reality, that you need to face your faults and your sin. Look at verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. None of us like to be criticized for our faults, no matter how constructive that criticism might be. And certainly none of us like to be confronted for our sins. But Q says that is far more valuable than wasting away your time listening to the songs of fools. We would rather spend our time in the house of mirth, as he calls it, singing and partying away. But partying and singing foolish songs, what it does is if that's where we put our hope, if that's how we deal with life instead of facing the reality of death in our sins, then we will find our hearts becoming hard because that's what the effect is on us. The prophet Amos talked about this hardening of the heart that happened in a time of prosperity in Israel. Listen to how he describes the process here. He says in Amos 6, beginning in verse 4, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph." They're partying, singing, drinking, and not grieving over the sins of their culture, of their own personal lives. And that leads to hardness of heart. In verse 6 of Ecclesiastes 7, I love this verse, it says, For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Now, he's putting a a very clear image in front of us there. If you were wanting to cook your dinner and putting together a campfire, and if you went and got a bunch of thorns and thistles and made a pile of them and lit them, what would happen? It would light. If they were old and dry, they would light quickly, and they would burn quickly, but then they would be gone very quickly, make a lot of annoying noise, a lot of crackling noise, but would do no good in heating the pot to make your dinner. And he says, that's what laughter is in the face of reality. You can get some quick relief, but no lasting meaning and purpose. You know, when we would go camping when our kids were little, I would send them out into the woods to bring, you know, branches and wood back for the fire. And too often they'd come back with leaves and pine needles. And so I would show them. I would go ahead and put it on the fire, but show them that in a few seconds it was gone. Laughter distracts us. Nothing wrong with laughter, just like there's nothing wrong with music. But if that's how you deal with reality, then your heart will become hard. And reality will come back to bite you. When I was in in college and in seminary, there was a very popular book written by a man named Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death. I don't hear much about that book anymore, which is kind of a shame because it was incredibly insightful. What Postman did, he was talking about how we've used entertainment to avoid reality in this culture and the the damaging effect it's had on culture. And the way that he approaches the book is he begins talking about two novels that were written in the 20th century. 
His main focus in the beginning is on the novel 1984 written by George Orwell. And George Orwell wrote that book around 1950, right after the Second World War. And in that book, it reflected the beginning of the Cold War era, the, the Iron Curtain, and the, 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 in the novel, basically what happens is a totalitarian state oppresses the people and controls the people completely by removing their liberties. What, what Postman does in writing the book Amusing Ourselves to Death is he compares that to a book that was written actually 20 years earlier, in around 1932, by Aldous Huxley named Brave, the book was called Brave New World. And what Postman does is he shows how in both of those books it talks about a totalitarian state oppressing and controlling the people and taking away people's freedoms. But what fascinates Postman is how the different strategy that the two governments use in the two novels. Let me read to you, and bear with me, I want to read a section of Postman's book. This is from the beginning, where he talks about the difference between the two books. He's talking as Americans. He says, we were keeping our eye on the year 1984 because of what we'd read for 30 years about what the prediction was of Orwell. When the year came and the prophecy didn't, thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise to themselves. The roots of liberal democracy had held. Whatever else the terror had happened, we at least had, had, had not been visited by Orwellian nightmares. But we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another, slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling book called Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression, but in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared, that, feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much information that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared that we would become a trivial and preoccupied culture. As Huxley remarked in Brave New World Revisited, which was a follow-up book, the civil libertarians and rationalists who are ever on the alert to oppose tyranny failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In the book 1984, Orwell added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we fear will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we desire will ruin us. Postman concludes that by saying, this book is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, was right. And I think he summarizes a little bit later, he says this, he says, Americans no longer talk to each other, they entertain each other. They do not exchange ideas, they exchange images. They do not argue with propositions, they argue with good looks, celebrities, and commercials.
I agree with Postman that Huxley was much more profound in his understanding of where the culture was headed because that is much more consistent with what the Bible tells us, what Q tells us about what human nature is. We would much rather listen to the songs of fools than the rebuke of the wise men. Much rather. It's interesting, in the story of the Brave New World, if you know the story, one of the, one of the ways that the totalitarian government controls the populace is through something that Huxley called feelies. Now, understand that Huxley wrote this in 1932, right after movies were invented, shortly after movies were invented. But feelies were movies that incorporated sensual perceptions. So in other words, you'd watch the movie, but you'd also smell the smells associated with the the images on the screen, and you would feel the, the sensations of the images that are going on on the screen. It's happening right in front of us. I mean, I, I just got invited by one of my daughters to go to Pittsburgh to see a 4D movie. A 4D movie, if you haven't heard about it, is a 3D movie that includes sensory interactions with what's on the screen, where you actually feel and smell and, you know, to involve all your senses in the movie experience. That's exactly what Huxley described in 1932 as a means by which that government controlled its people. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not saying that 4D movies are the death of our culture. That's not my point. My point is that Q is telling us that we need to face the reality of our sin. We need to deal with the harsh reality of sin in our lives instead of distracting ourselves from it all the time. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, describes how sensuality has a hardening effect on our heart. Listen to how he describes the process. Talking about the Gentiles, those who are not born again. He says in Ephesians 4, 17, You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Sensuality hardens the heart. Facing the reality of sin and death brings new birth. And that's just the plain truth of Scripture. Remember what Jesus said? He said, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. But he also said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Nothing wrong with laughter. There's nothing wrong with songs. So long as you are at the same time facing the reality of sin and death in your life and mourning, because that's the way of discipleship, is mourning over your own sins and mourning over the sins of others. Thirdly, Q says facing reality means Facing a lack of progress in us and in our lives. Facing a lack of progress. Look look at how he turns wisdom up on its head in verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. That's not how we think. We want to be a part of beginnings. We want to be a part of a new movement. We want to be going somewhere. We want to be making a big difference in the world. We want to be a part of a movement. And it's better to be at the beginning than to be at the end. We want to be the up-and-comers, not the old and the dying. You see, the problem is, in our culture, we've built things larger than what the scientists tell us is real, unbelieving scientists tell us is real, which is 
that evolution is all there is, and that evolution is the only driving thing in consistency through history. So what that does, if that's the basis of your worldview and that alone, what happens is that you expect everything to always be getting better. We're always progressing. The future is always better than the past. But that's exactly wrong according to Scripture. Things that really matter in life never change. Because of our advances in technology, we have this strong illusion of progress. But when you look at the basic behaviors of people and the basic realities of life, nothing ever changes. Isn't that what Q told us back in chapter 1? Remember that? He says, beginning in verse 4, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around it goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. What has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. You see, that's the perspective of scripture. That things aren't getting better that man's nature is still the same since the fall in the Garden of Eden, and that God's holiness never changes either. But even though things are not getting better under the sun, he also goes on to say things are not getting worse. Do you notice that in verse 10? Q says, Say not, why were the former things better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. It's so tempting, isn't it? To look back and say, oh, man... We could just go back to the glory days. Things were so much better when I was in my 20s. American culture was so much better back in the 50s. And Q says, you're not facing reality. Things weren't better back then. Sure, superficially. Who would deny that our culture has gotten worse morally, spiritually in the last 40, 50 years? But has man's nature changed Has the essence of of life changed? Has the reality of the important things changed at all? It's always been this way. Longing for the glory days is really prideful at its heart, isn't it? Because when you think, oh man, you know, things were so much better when I was a young man, when I was getting started, when, you know, things were so much better, you know, what we're saying essentially is we were better people back then than people today. And that's not true. It's prideful, it's naive, it's not facing reality, and it's escapist because it's a lot more fun to sit around and poke fingers at the new generation than it is to to really deal with reality. When we studied the book of Revelation in the Sunday school a few months ago, one of the things that became very clear as we worked through the book of Revelation is that things aren't going to change dramatically between the first and second comings of Christ. Because from God's perspective, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil, the kingdom of darkness, they are battling it out. And it's like that in every generation until Christ comes again. So we need to face the reality that our personal lives are not going to get better in terms of our circumstances. Our family's not going to get better. The American culture is not going to get better, ultimately. Things might up and down. You're going to have your little blips in one generation to another, but ultimately things are going to stay the same, and there's nothing new under the sun. That's the reality that Q wants us to face, which brings us to the last reality. 
that we need to face, which is that we are not in control. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Again, Q is only looking under the sun. And he believes in a creator, a good creator, a holy creator, but the world is broken. He recognizes just by observing that things are not what they should be. It's under a curse. And he says God has done it. He has put a curse on the earth under the sun. Romans 8 tells us that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. It is God's sovereign will that life is hard, that suffering abounds, and ultimately that death is a reality we have to face. In verse 14, there's a strong statement about God's sovereignty over over all of life. It says, In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider... God has made the one as well as the other. That's a hard message. But he's saying, you know, God gives and God takes away. That's consistent with what Q's been saying through the entire book. God gives and God takes away according to his sovereign will. He blesses and he sends trials. You see, Q, again, is only viewing life under the sun. So that means if God has a plan, if there's some plan and purpose behind the adversity and prosperity that seems so arbitrary, seems so chaotic in life, if there's some plan, Q doesn't know it because he's not looking above the sun. And that's why Q comes across as being so frustrated with life under the sun, is he can't see the plan. But what he's calling upon us in light of that to understand is that we are not in control. And nothing irks us more than somebody telling us that we're not in control of our lives. Do you remember when Job had everything taken away from him? His wife said to him, why don't you just curse God and die? Do you remember how Job responded? Job said, shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? I love what Job says there because it's such a profound statement of faith when you understand what he's basing that statement on. He's saying, first of all, I don't deserve prosperity from God. I only deserve adversity. Matter of fact, I deserve eternal adversity in hell. But he's also acknowledging that God does have a plan. That when God sends prosperity or adversity, there's a plan behind it, and Job trusted in the loving plan of God. And that's something that Q couldn't find under the sun. Something Q couldn't know or discern under the sun. But it's something that you find when the word of God comes into the picture. Reality is found in the word of God and ultimately in the one about the word of God teaches us, the son of God. We are all born schizophrenics, whether you like it or not. As we are born into the world, We are out of touch with reality. And not only are we out of touch with reality, not only are we believing all kinds of false beliefs and thinking all kinds of wrong thoughts and exhibiting all kinds of wrong behavior because of being out of touch with reality, we don't want to see reality. We run away from any exposure to reality. That's the way we're born. We're born rebellious schizophrenics. But the cure is the gospel. That's the only cure to spiritual schizophrenia. 
The bad news of Scripture is that we need to face the fact that under the sun, our lives are full of sin and therefore full of death, and that we cannot ultimately on our own improve upon the past, and we are ultimately not in control of our current lives, our future, our ultimate destiny. That's the bad news, and that's what Q wants us to face. But the bad news is to point us to the good news that the rest of Scripture reveals. And the good news is the gospel, that God has spoken. There is a word from heaven. Peter quotes Isaiah 40. Remember Isaiah 40 talks about all, that we are all grass? Well, Peter quotes that, but notice how he puts it in the context of the gospel. In 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 23, it says, You have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass. Here's where he quotes Isaiah. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And Peter goes on to add this. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The gospel. Once you've faced reality, and quite honestly, biblical Christians are the only ones who are truly authentic and truly know reality because they first face the harsh realities of life that Q's talking about. But they also, by God's grace, have had their eyes open and have received a word from God that is good news, that gives eternal life. Because God does have a sovereign plan for all of human history. And that plan is called the covenant of grace. And that's what the Bible is about. It's about the first and second coming of Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, who added to his divine nature a human nature and lived among us as a perfect human being. Therefore, Jesus Christ is the only human being since the fall in the Garden of Eden who was not schizophrenic. Because Jesus Christ always had an accurate view of reality. And therefore, always believed the right things, and thought the right things, and behaved in all the right ways. But if you believe God's word, which has been revealed from heaven, then we know that death is defeated because Christ died in our place and conquered death and was raised again. And those who put their faith in him will rise again from the dead and our lives will go on for eternity in the blessings of God's kingdom. And if you believe in Jesus Christ... The word of God tells us that your sin is paid for in full. You can face your sins. You're the only people that can truly, completely face your sins. Confess them. And be forgiven completely and healed from the effects of your sins. Which means that you are the only ones who truly can experience meaningful progress in your life. Because if you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you believe he died for your sins, you believe that he's raised from the dead, If you committed your life to him, then you know that his Holy Spirit is in you and with you to transform you into his image. Your life will only get better from here on out if your faith is in Christ. And you will one day be perfect like him in eternity. Having faced all that reality and embraced all the truth of the gospel, then you ultimately are completely okay with being out of control of your destiny. You don't need to control your life today. You don't need to control it tomorrow or the rest of this earthly life under the sun. And you don't need to control it for all eternity because God does have a plan. And that plan works everything together for your good. 
That's what Romans 8 tells us. You know this passage. But this is the rest of the truth that Q wants us to discover in the rest of Scripture. We know that that for those who love God, all things work together for good. The adversity as well as the prosperity. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You need to face reality, all the harshness of it, and then hunger for the word of God that gives you the hope and the deliverance. You know, speaking of great works of literature, the Wizard of Oz, in that original book, it's interesting, when they get to the Emerald City, which is the, the goal of their whole journey, when they get to the Emerald City, in the movie, it's this glorious city that's green because it's made out of emeralds and green glass, and it's just this gloriously beautiful city. But in the original book, I don't know if you know this or not, it wasn't a green city at all. It wasn't made out of emeralds at all. It was just an ordinary city, but the wizard made everybody who came into the city put on glasses with green lenses so that everything looked like it was made out of emeralds. You see, that's the world we live in people that don't see reality for what it is. Praise God that he has removed the veil, as Paul calls it, so that we can see reality. Don't take pride in this because it's an act of God's grace in your life, but you have had the blinders taken off. You see reality because you not only believe everything Q has taught, but you also believe the gospel. Let us go take that message of truth to the world.